Good morning. It is a delight to be with you this morning. The fellowship that we have is a, a, a rare thing and a, and, a, and a precious thing to have many people who subscribe to sovereign grace of God and the salvation of sinners that are scattered all over the world. And yes, God has people all over the world. They do not have the privilege of being so close as we are, even a couple hours apart. We can fellowship one with the other. We have um, a, a precious like faith that we can rejoice together in. And we are so blessed to have this close fellowship. And you might think, well, there are buildings with crosses on them all over the place. But true gospel churches are hard to come by. And it only takes it only takes but a, a quick perusal of social media to see uh, our brothers and sisters around the world who cry out to God for the fellowship that we could so easily take for granted. So I am thrilled and humbled that the Lord of glory has raised up people uh, here in the greater Cincinnati and back home in Piketon uh, and in places like Ashland, Kentucky and all around the world. He has fellowships. I'm glad he put us close enough together that we could spend some time together every once in a while. And it's a beautiful thing. So I'm thrilled to be here and I do bring... <clears throat> The thoughts and prayers of my own uh, congregation uh, in the hills, uh, Horizons Baptist Church there in Piketon. Uh, they are uh, in good hands with another elder this morning, so I know they'll be just fine. And uh, I think we're going to have a wonderful and encouraging time in God's Word today as well. I think uh, as we open the Word of God, I pray that it is an encouragement to you. I take to heart the admonition, comfort ye my people, speak tenderly to them. Because, beloved, we are saved by a righteousness that is not our own. We are redeemed by something other than ourselves. And he is Jesus Christ. We have nothing of which to boast in our flesh. The flesh doesn't profit. But in Christ, we can make our stand, our boast. And we can say some trust in uh, chariots, some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And if we're saved at all, it's due to his matchless love and grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we have something to smile about. We have a uh, we have a hope that maketh not ashamed, the scripture says. And I'm thrilled to know that we believe and preach the gospel as a finished work. Think about those two words as we're just prefacing the sermon. How many times in false religion, and I mean the most religious of false religion, do we ever hear anyone say the finished work of Christ? You'll, you'll never hear it. Salvation isn't a finished work in so many of these religious societies. It's something that you're working together with God to hopefully produce. But beloved... He who beginneth a good work in you shall be faithful to complete it. And what did our Lord say on Calvary's hill as he was giving up the ghost? He cried out, it is finished. I am thankful today that the redeeming work is the work of his alone. And he saves his people just as the angel said he would do. He shall save his people from their sins. So I hope and pray and my heart's desire for you today is that uh, I speak encouraging words to you 
tender words to you. Words that remind you that Jesus Christ and his promises remain. That he is faithful. We are faithless at times. We are, we are so, so much all over the place. But he remains steady and constant. I'm thankful for the Lord of glory who does not let his people go. I'm thankful for a God who does not let loose his people. I'm thankful for God's grace in Christ. And I hope that I can be of some encouragement to you today as we go into the Lord's word together. I am going to be reading from Isaiah, the 61st chapter, Isaiah 61. And we will consider for our text the first three verses, although I will not limit myself to those three verses. I uh, withhold the right to expound if necessary. But we'll begin with those three verses. The word of the living God. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And we trust the Lord will add his own blessing to the public reading of his infallible and holy word for our good and for his glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. A simple thought this morning, and it is this. The gospel, what Jesus did, provides liberty to the captives. He is our great liberator. And so the title of my message this morning is simply this. Liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. Jesus used these same words when he announced his public ministry. And if you read the New Testament account, which I will not read this moment, but I encourage you to read on your own, you'll find that they were astonished at his speech, but not so many verses down after Jesus began to explain what all of this meant. They grew weary and angry with him and began to question, who exactly do you think you are? And it's very much the case when you preach the true gospel that people will be offended. And it's interesting, in the same room, you can have, as it were, sheep and goats. You can have those who belong in the flock of the Lord, who know they belong there, and they will hear this message, and tears might flow down their eyes as they begin to understand just a little bit more the depths of his love for them, and how he paid their ransom price in full, and how without him they can do nothing, and with him they can do all things. And they hear the gospel, and it's like mother's milk. It encourages the soul. It strengthens them for the journey ahead. One of the reasons why we gather together as we do is so that we can encourage one another, 
so that we can be of an, uh, of an edifying nature to one another. You know, um, it's, it is very true that there are Christians around the world that don't have a place of fellowship, a, a place to gather. And we talked about that earlier. But boy, those of us who do must understand the, the, the great benefit it is to our, uh, our, our growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord to have a church that will teach and disciple and help us understand every little bit more each day what the Lord of glory has done on our behalf and how it is that the Bible says of his blessings that they are new each day. And we gather and we hear this and it's a beautiful thought to us, but to the unbelieving world, this exact same message is the epitome of offensiveness to them. Because the true gospel does not begin with, you're just about okay, you're just about there, You've just got a God-shaped hole in your heart. And if only you had the final booster shot, that is Jesus, your otherwise perfect life would be even more perfect. This is what passes as the gospel in so many of these religious places and in so many of the religious schemes of man. The true gospel begins with, hello, prisoners. Hello, graveyard. You're enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to bondage. You have no hope. You're lawbreakers. You have nothing of which to boast. And what does our Lord say into that darkness? He walks into the synagogue and he grabs the scroll and he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. The unbeliever will say, Who are you calling meek? I don't take a back seat to anybody. I know I'm better than my next door neighbor. I know that I've got more going for me than that wino down the street. Who are you calling meek? The Christian who's been called by God's grace unto this faith in which we stand will say, yes, Lord. <laughs> Without you, I'm nothing. And I freely confess that because I believe the gospel. And I know that when you hang there on that tree, you were there for me and you died for me. And I know I'm a, I'm a poor and needy sinner. That's what the gospel does. To one, it's a blessing to hear that old, old story all over again. When I read these words, every time I read them, I think about Christ saying them in power, fulfilling them in the, in the, in the ears of those people in that synagogue. And how, how to me as a Christian who, who, who understands the grace of God as he's opened it and revealed it to me, I find just such a blessing in that. But I also know that to the unregenerate mind, those who are in the flesh, the Bible says of them, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh is at enmity against God. So this message of grace and glory and hope and peace that comes so freely to wash over a Christian like a water, a, a, a rushing mighty river as it were, is offensive to those who think they can be righteous on their own. To those unbelievers who believe they're just fine without this Jesus. And it is a great offense. As a matter of fact, it is a rock of offense. To them, they look at that as something that is just insurmountable. I'm good enough without your Jesus. My friends, self-righteousness is the knee-jerk reflexive reaction, if you will, of the unbelieving mind. I am righteous apart from your Christ. I don't need your Christ. I can recall just a few days ago speaking with a friend and 
sharing the gospel, someone that I'd known from school days. And I was sharing the gospel, and he interrupted me and said, so wait a minute, preacher. You're saying that I can do nothing of any, of any good in God's eyes? I can't do any righteous deeds in God's eyes? And I began to explain to him the futility of trying to unbreak God's law and how it is that you and I cannot unbreak God's law. We are lawbreakers. The Bible says we're conceived in iniquity. And so we need someone to pay the price in full. We cannot do it. We can't do it. And our works cannot please God. The Bible says, for by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. That's the, 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 the hard reality here. And it's an offense. And now this fellow here, he's not a Christian. He says to me, so wait a minute. I'm supposed to serve a God who doesn't really appreciate anything that I do. And I begin to explain to him a little bit deeper. I said, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's the, the idea that you think you can please a holy God with unholy works. This is the idea that's foreign to the Christian. And we got into the discussion a bit, and his mind kept coming back, being offended by the notion that he could offer nothing of any saving good to God. And he began to grow angry with me and with my message. He said, I would never serve a God who thought that I wasn't good enough. And I shake my head up and down. I said, and I know that. I absolutely know that. And so he opened the door at that point for me to discuss even more about how it is that men don't come a running. You know, the gospel's not a dinner bell. We don't just ring a bell and then watch the sinners flood in. The Bible speaks of salvation as the Lord going and pursuing, the good shepherd going and pursuing his sheep. And unless the Lord himself does the work, the people always perish. And I began to explain to him that it would take the Lord of glory to open his mind to this repentance, to this notion that you can't be good enough on your own. You need a righteousness that is not your own, that is found only in the finished work of a perfect Savior and mediator, Jesus Christ. And it offended him, and he wanted to change the subject. Much like when Christ himself read from this very passage in the synagogue, many heard it and they thought, this is a... Beautiful thing. And then as Christ began to explain and go into detail, then they began to be offended. We see that very plainly. He came to preach good tidings unto the meek. Are you the meek? Has the Lord revealed this to you in saving knowledge? I often say this to my own congregation, and I believe it. Now, it's anecdotal, and I'm sure if you picked any analogy apart, they fall apart. But this is how I like to talk to my own congregation. I say, if I want to find a room full of sinners, I'll have better luck getting a, a, a confession of that reality out of a, a, a group of people at a gospel-believing church rather than, say, a nightclub. Who's more apt to confess their sins? God's people or a bunch of folks, you know, trolling around some house of ill repute someplace else? They're all going to say, we're just fine. But it's God's people who know that they're poor and needy. I know in me no good thing dwells. That's what the book says, and I believe that. I know that in me there are warring passions. You know, uh, we have this terrible idea in church culture that ministers are somehow superstar Christians, whatever that might mean. And I think our notion of superstar Christian means people who somehow live as demigods above all sin and temptation. 
You know, they're not quite divine, but they've been touched by a special blessing of God that keeps them pure from the taint of the world and all of its all of its staining realities. There's a theological term that describes that kind of teaching to the T, and it's simple to learn, and I'll teach it to you now. Hogwash. Hogwash. You'll hear people banting around the notion of a personal holiness as though Jesus is holy and, well, I've got a little bag of holiness too. And he's holy and that's great and good for you, Jesus. Thanks for the booster shot. I've got my own holiness cooking over here in the bag. It'll be cooked up here in a few years and I'll have it. I'll, I'll, I will have arrived. No. Christian people throw all that kind of thinking to the dust. We, we throw our pride to the dust. We know what's going on in here. We know what's going on. We know that the passions of the flesh war against us every day. And simply because you recognize through the power of the Spirit your need of Christ doesn't mean that your day-to-day -day life just somehow disappears. That you're somehow immune to, the, uh, to the, 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 the fleshly appetites and the things that would cause you to stumble. And you're going to fight this fight. And yes, it's a fight. It's a war. We know what we ought to do. We know what we ought to do. But we also know that there's this battle raging. And what do we do? Do we pretend like everything's okay and lie to each other and say, I have a personal holiness and I live above sin? And go around our whole lives in some sort of weird theological denial? Or do we fall at the feet of Christ and say to him, thank you for bringing these good tidings to me. I am meek and lowly. I'm stained in sin. And apart from the saving work of Christ, I am a wretch. And you are too. God's people say amen to that. The world says, get lost. I'm better than that. I know I'm better than that. They'll shake their fist and say, I don't want to hear that Jesus talk. Now, they don't mind the Joel Osteen, uh, you know, I don't know what to call that. It's not even preaching. I don't know what that is. They don't mind that your best life now stuff. They'll swallow the T.D. Jakes, get rich, quick stuff. They'll, they love all that kind of stuff. Creflo Dollar and his big fancy jet, they'll laugh at him, think he's weird. But they'll still tolerate what he preaches a lot quicker than they will the biblical gospel. Because at least with those guys, they got a chance of making some money if they throw a couple of dollar bills in the offering plate. But when you preach the real gospel, the first thing you do is you tell everybody there's nothing you can do. There's ground zero. And guess what? We are all right there, equal, in the dust. No one's better than anyone else. God did not choose some of us before time began because he saw something good in us. He saw something in us that swayed his counsel. No, I think that's why the scripture is so emphatic about telling us that he did all of these things in love before the foundation of the world. Before Esau, Jacob, did anything good or bad. The Bible says that God did what he did, that his purposes in election might stand. So are you meek today? Do you find this message humbling yet edifying? It's, it's so interesting to me that the gospel is this beautiful notion of God planting us in reality, saying, you are nothing apart from me. But through me, you can do all things. What are all things? How about eternal life, for starters? 
How about fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. This is a legal standing we have, beloved. A legal reality that cannot be washed away by the works of our hands. We couldn't earn it. You can't lose it. It's all of grace. It's all of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I am meek and lowly, but he is altogether lovely. And praise the living God, this gospel sweeps over a Christian soul anew and afresh every time they hear it. And they can't, can't help but think to themselves, praise God for his grace, for his mercy. I'm a wretch. I'm no better than that next door neighbor that everybody thinks is awful. And I bet when they're over at her house, I'm the next door neighbor they think that's awful. I'm no better than anybody else. You know what I find in my life? I get to this verse where it says he's come to preach good tidings to, unto the meek. I find that as I, as I live in the reality of sovereign grace, with all of the trappings of frail humanity, I'm telling you right now, you're sinning every day. You're confessing every day to the Lord your need for his grace. But even in the midst of all that, you still think at times, you know, Oh, that person's this, that, or the other. Or that sin is really, really awful bad. And then when you begin to think about it and you look at the scriptures, you think to yourself, what business do I have of quantifying someone else's sin? You know, why is it so easy to point out the sins of our neighbor? It's it's part of this 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 this. Fallen reality in which we live. We feel this incessant need to benefit or to, to gain some sort of leverage by climbing on the broken backs of those around us, by pointing out their frailties, their faults. Uh, I grew up in a holiness church. And I don't mean God's holiness in the gospel. I mean people who thought they were holy. Uh, it's almost an oxymoron because I don't believe God's people look within for their assurance of holiness. So that, to call themselves a, a holiness church it's sort of like saying jumbo shrimp. I don't think that the two words apply. If you're holy, you're holy only because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything in you, not because of anything you've done, but my story is growing up in a reality where everyone in the church just knew they were better than everyone else. And now they were humble about it because they always said, thank the Lord, after they bragged. You know, I'm better than they are. Thank the Lord. Or, I don't know where I'd be. Thank the Lord. But I know I'd probably be somewhere where my uncle is right now. Y'all be praying for him. He's off. But I'm not. Thank the Lord. And it was this sickening display of self-righteousness that I thought was just perfectly fine. Because guess what? We're inherently self-righteous. That's the nature of the fall. Our first parents looked upon the fruit and they said, hot dog. We've got ourselves a ticket in now. We'll be, we'll know as he knows. There's a way that seems right into a man. The end thereof is destruction. What they do, take a big old bite of whatever that fruit was and boom. The rebellion. And we've been in this ever since. But we're inherently self-righteous. And even as a Christian, we have to, we fight with that temptation to quantify, to, to, uh, to somehow say, well now, Sally sinned extra super duper bad. 
I like what Henry Mayhem said once. I was listening to a sermon not so many days ago from, I think, back in the early 80s. He was talking about how he allowed a lady at a church he used to pastor before 13th Street Baptist Church in Ashland. He allowed her to come up and sing a song or do something and participate in the service. And one of the deacons came to him and said, uh, Henry, you can't have her sing. She's not yet lived down her past sins. She's not been saved long enough. Not lived down her past sins. And of course, uh, Henry Mann tells the story about how he sort of just balked at that and told the guy, you know, that's not what we preach. We preach forgiveness of sins in Christ and then we sit back and judge people and say, oh, you've not lived down your sins, sister. Sit down. Are you kidding me? You see, church folks are inherently self-righteous just like everybody else. Now, we have a wonderful guide in the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. He leads us into the truth. And, you know, even to this day, I battle with that that temptation to want to quantify someone else's sin. I want to think that somehow I'm better. You know, oh, at least I'm not doing that. And then the, the word of God checks me. And I, th I think to myself, you know, Lord, I've broken your law. I'm no better than the worst sinner I ever preached to. And who's the worst sinner? Paul said it best when he said, I, he said of himself, he said, I am the chief of sinners. That's the ticket. I believe the gospel finally brings us to that point where we look to heaven and we realize we are lawbreakers. We're in need of his mercy and his grace. Beloved, he has come to preach good tidings unto the meek. And I believe the gospel, as it's revealed by the Holy Spirit in the preaching, in the scripture, reveals unto us this the impossibility of pleasing God in our own strength. We find ourselves and our pride scattered in the dust, and we look up from whence cometh our help. Verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. The acceptable year of the Lord. What a beautiful time in which we live. Yes, I know there are tragedies all over the world. There are... Uh, Political despots that are ruling over vast swaths of, of, of land, causing certain people, groups to be starved to death and tortured. And there are wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said, you know, we'll have the poor with us always. And yes, in this day and age, almost a third of the world go to sleep malnourished. We live in a time that is just filled with tragedy and with turmoil. Uh, and yet we live in a beautiful time because the gospel is going forth to all the corners of the world. This gospel has never seen a day where it has been so freely accessible to so many. Even now, we are broadcasting from this small little chapel that we've converted the, the school into here. We're broadcasting, and who knows who will hear this message and open a Bible and think to themselves, you know, that's not what those TV preachers are saying. They're saying, I can have my best life now. That preacher's saying that without Christ, I'm a wretch. And I need Christ, and it's only his righteousness that makes the difference. And so this message is going all over the place. Uh, later on, it'll be posted in other, in other avenues, and hundreds more people might very well experience this message. And as it stays out there in the world uh, through our social networks and through the Internet and all the technology we've been given, who knows what the impact of all of those messages that our churches post and, and spread around the world will have. We don't know, but this I know. We live in this time where... The scripture says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
This is a promise from the Lord. The question is, who among you are weary and heavy laden? Do you know? Do you know that you're, you're, you're lost and undone without the Lord? And now, this beautiful time in which we live with all of the world's problems, yes, we acknowledge them, and I do not minimize them for what they are, but I'm here to tell you, salvation, full and free, is being preached to every corner of this globe. Not by the mouthpieces that the world might think are preaching it. There are a lot of very famous pontificators, a lot of famous preachers who are going around with something that sounds like they're using gospel language, but the gospel itself is something sometimes a lot different than the name brand preachers are preaching. Nonetheless, God's word is going out. Listen, the scripture says of this, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Growing up, I never had a comforting word from the pulpit. All we ever got force-fed was an out-of-context scripture passage and then a to-do list of things that we must do in order to attain God's certain standard that the pastor would set. And so it was always three steps to a spirit-filled life, four steps to a happy marriage, as a youngster, I, I got to tune out of those particular sermons because I wasn't married yet. Uh, you know, you'd have all of these steps and these to-do lists. And the whole idea was, you've got to do something. Or, quote, you must let God do this in your life. And so there was never a sense of assurance. And frankly, at the end of the service, everybody I knew got resaved, whether they needed it or not. Everybody just come up front. All right, everybody, come on. Let's get saved. Let's come up front. And let's kneel down at this bench we built because this is how Jesus didn't do it. And, uh, you know, come on. Play that song again, you know. Let's have another verse of just as I am as we manipulate people's emotions and, and drag them up front. A classic example of that is everyone bow your heads, close your eyes with every head bowed, every eye closed. Now, I'm not going to come pick anybody out, but if you'd just like me to pray for you, would you raise your hand? <laughs> fall for that one. You'll only fall for that one once. Most of the time, the preachers would have you raise your hands, and then first thing they'd do, now if you raised your hands, you need to come on, and then they'd walk over to you and grab a hold of you and drag you up front. You know, you fell for it. You deserved it. And it's funny only because we see it as ridiculous in the light of the true gospel. All of these notions of men, ridiculous. But never was I comforted in the assurance of, of the promises of Christ. They had no assurance. Their assurance was in their ability to maybe get to church Sunday morning so they could somehow rededicate their life to God and somehow make all the week's bad things go away. And then Monday would hit him right in the face. And by the next Sunday, they'd be running back into the church, hoping to get a little more assurance by running into the church and and praying all their bad things away and having another emotional experience with God, let me tell you, that gets old. Because you need more and more emotional stimuli to get you to that next level. Every time, you know, the song that used to make you cry, well, they'd sing it again the following Sunday and it just wasn't doing it because you already knew the words of that one. So you'd need a new emotional uh, a stimulation source. So they'd add a drum set or they'd, they'd add some lights. And now you go into some of these places and it's a full-on rock concert with digital light shows and all this other stuff. Why? Because they're constantly looking for a way to move someone's emotional state from A to B. But the one thing you'll never get 
is assurance and comfort from God's word. Instead, you'll get, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to, per- you've got to persevere in this, uh, and you've got to do that. And, or you've got to, uh, what's the, oh, pray through. That's a classic from the hills. I don't know if it's big around here or not, but it was a big thing growing up. I always heard, you've got to pray through. You got to get the victory. And it was all about what you could do as you squalled in front of everybody, kneeling down at an altar bench. And don't worry. You'd pray through and you'd feel an emotional high and it would quickly vanish because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday don't care a bit about how good you cried on Sunday. The work week's still going to smack you right in the head. The problems and the deadlines you had at work are still going to be there after you had your little crybaby fit at the front of the church in front of everybody. And guess what you don't have? You don't have the assurances in the gospel promises of Christ that everything's okay. Because your preacher spent all day long telling you what you needed to do, not what he already finished. And yet the scripture here says that the hallmark quality of the gospel is the comforting nature and the comforting assurance that it affords God's people. The people who once were in darkness have now seen a great light. What did I bring to the table but darkness? Sin, depravity, and despair. My Lord saved me, and he promised to never let me go. I'm going to have days just like every other human being on this planet. I'm going to have great days where everything's awesome. I'm going to have other days that are not going to be nearly as awesome. But guess what? Through it all, I, cr- I, cling, to a, 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 I cling to a Savior who clings to me, and he never lets go. My grip slips and slides and I really want to serve him but you know I don't serve him perfectly and no one does but the gospel is a perfect work that Jesus performed on my behalf beloved be comforted in the knowledge that your sins are blotted out that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life and that nobody can unsave you My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall they be removed from my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me, and no one shall be able to take them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Beloved, you are in the triune grip, the the, the thrice-fold grip of the triune God, and you are safe and secure in his hands. And so if you're having a bad day, a bad year, a bad life, Know this for certain, the promises of God in Christ are steadfast and he will not let you go. You belong to him. Do you believe the gospel? You belong to him. Have have faith in and, and be encouraged in the truth of what Christ came to give us. He came to bring his people comfort. Praise the living God. We don't have to somehow make his work effectual. His work performed, completed, and satisfied everything God needed on our behalf. Verse 3. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I love the contrasts. In their day, ashes were typically used as a mourning ritual. And I don't mean an early mourning ritual. I mean like someone passed away, so they're mourning them ritual. They would sometimes sit, and the Bible talks about sackcloth and ashes. It was a, a typical way of, of, of telling everybody, hey, 
we're not having any fun around this house today. I'm in mourning. Uh, we turn, we classed it up a bit in modern Western culture by wearing black. You know, we just wear black clothing and, and, and everybody knows, or maybe the black armbands you've seen at funerals and other things. But the scripture here says that Christ, the Bible says, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. What are we mourning? You know, what what kind of situation are we in? Again, who comes and brings us the realization of what we really are? It's it's almost as though, you know, we we we're, we're self righteous, and then we hear the gospel, and then everything changes as as grace begins to flood in. We begin to see what manner of man we really were and are, and then we look to the Lord and we say, Lord, save me. You know, folks who are asleep on the boat that's getting sloshed side to side in the in the big sea billows, they might not even understand what's going on. As a matter of fact, they won't. Why? Because they're asleep. The gospel kind of wakes us up to the reality of it all. That's why it's offensive to folks. They don't want to hear it. And yet the scripture says here that he'll give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And if I could just draw your attention to those of you who have their, your Bibles open, what are these garments of praise? Look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Oh my, my. He found us dead, destitute, naked, and then unashamed because of our sin, how we bought into it. And, the, and he rips away the goofy veneer of self-righteousness in the preaching of the gospel. And then we see Christ and we say, oh, save me lest I perish. And what then? The Bible says that he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Notice the scripture doesn't admonish us to find joy and peace and assurance in the works of our own hands. It doesn't say follow this list and, and be saved and do all these things. No, no, no. Find joy in God. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Salvation's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus did, what he completed. And now my joy is fulfilled in that. Yeah, I know I'm not always happy. I know I'm not always feeling good. You know, you always see these folks that just always seem beamingly happy all the time. You just want to strangle them. Oh, that's right. We're, we're better than that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, we're not. Sometimes the candor catches people off guard because at church we're supposed to use churchy words and sound extra dignified. You know, but the truth is, you know what I'm talking about. Those people that just always syrupy happy, you know, and you just look at them like, don't you ever wake up with a with a you know a chip on your shoulder? And maybe they do, maybe they hide it a little better. But where is our joy coming from? Where can you be joyful in the Lord, knowing that a lot of stuff around you is just not quite right? You better believe you can. I think Job shows us a beautiful example of that. I think even Jonah, as much as he was a big old stiff necked man, he was a racist. He hated those people in Nineveh. He was a racist. He wanted God to wipe them out. Even after he got out of the great fish, you know, 
He cried out to God. He knew his salvation rested in God alone. He knew he did. He even said in the belly, he said, salvation belongeth unto God. It's God's salvation. Jonah was a sovereign grace preacher, and he was a racist and a mean old stiff-necked fella. So mean, in fact, that even after he went to Nineveh and told the people the bad good news, that God was going to wipe them out, he set up camp outside the city gates to watch the fireworks. This guy was crazy racist. He wanted them wiped out. He was going to sit there under his gourd, maybe eating some, I don't know what they had, not potato chips, but something, whatever it might have been. He was going to sit there and just watch the show, wasn't he? People always, the flannel graph Sunday school version of Jonah angers me at this point. They always leave the story. And everyone in Nineveh said they were sorry to God and everything ended just la, 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 la. The book of Jonah does not end like that. As a matter of fact, I'm of the inclination that the book of Jonah is more about Jonah than it is about Nineveh. So his gourd dries up. He's still waiting for God to destroy everything. And then nothing, you know. It's like he gets mad that God doesn't wipe him out. He's more upset about his withered up shade than he was about God sparing those people. And God looks at him and says, man, what is wrong with you? And yet even Jonah, messed up as all get out. I mean, I'm sorry, if you read the book of Jonah, you, you walk away from that just from a literary uh, standpoint going, wow, this is, this is too crazy not to be real because this guy's real life. You know, typically in the mythologies you'll read, they always make the hero look extra virtuous. And, and No, not Jonah. God said, hey, go over there and preach those people that you hate. And he says, huh, I'm not doing that. I'm going that away. He gets swallowed up by fish, regurgitated on the seashore. He goes over there anyhow and still wants God to destroy him. I mean, this guy is just straight out of real life. Why? Because that's how we really are. You know, that's real life. But even Jonah, as messed up as he was, understood that his salvation came from God, not from the works of his own hands. Salvation is of the Lord. And so here we see that my soul shall be joyful in my God. And I love this line, and we're going to close with this. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. People say, well, salvation is what Jesus starts in us, and then we cultivate salvation by partnering with him, and his righteousness plus our good works equals salvation. And the answer there is no, no, no. That's false gospel. That's not even close. He has clothed me with the robes of salvation, the garments of righteousness. I can't be righteous. I'm a lawbreaker. Jesus had to go death's way so that God could be just and the justifier. His law had to be satisfied, beloved. Jesus Christ satisfied the law. And even though our sins are forgiven, we still need a righteousness that is not our own. And so we see Christ becoming sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And all of this by imputation, receiving on our credit, you know, to our credit, that which did not belong to us, giving unto him the penalty of our sin as we take upon ourselves his righteousness, all by imputation. The Lord of glory is so good to us. He calls us to comfort those who mourn because that's what the gospel does. I am so glad that the Lord saved me. I'm glad that we can proclaim liberty to the captives. You have family members that aren't saved. I do too. Keep telling them the gospel. 
keep sharing the gospel with them. God is sovereign. And people say, well, you sovereign grace folks believe God's just going to save whoever he's going to save. And I say, amen to that. So why bother preaching? And I immediately say, I preach to everybody because I know God can save anybody he wants. And it's a beautifully liberating notion to know that no power in heaven or hell can stop God from doing that which he has foreordained before the foundation of the world. And all I am is just a meager, sinful mouthpiece, wretched sinner saved by his grace. And the Lord takes sometimes the, the goofiest, you know, what I would say feeble messages and sermons that I preach and next thing I know, someone's come, hey, I want to be baptized. And I'm thinking, wow, that's awesome. And then I know it's it's just God's working power in the gospel. Not my, no programs, no gimmicks. And we're not passing out free hot dogs and balloons or anything like that. You just tell the story of Jesus and what he did, what he completed for his people. And then you ask the question, are you hungry for this? Do you thirst for this? Do you thirst for a righteousness that's not your own? Because if you do, you only do so because God has begun to work, changing your mind about everything. That's, beloved's repentance. Repenting of all that goofiness. You know, you can't, you can't be good enough. And I'm thankful that I'm incapable. I love that old song. I think Caveman's Call sang it. Uh, you know, there was a, a while there that, you know, I listened to it like three or four times, and the, the line of the song says, I am so thankful that I'm incapable of doing any good on my own. And You listen to that, and you're thinking, wait a minute, what is that? Then they begin to talk about Ephesians and the Scripture, and it turns out to be a pretty decent song. And it's got a good beat to it, too, which I think scares a lot of Sovereign Grace folks because, you know, a lot of times we're rhythmically challenged, and we don't know about tempo. You know, it's kind of spooky stuff. Um, and you're sitting there in the car listening to that going, this is great. I love this. Why? Because Christian people are meek and lowly. We've already given up on the notions that we're going to please God in our own strength because the Spirit of God has testified to the truth of the gospel. Now, be encouraged. You know, a lot of smiling TV preachers are telling you to be happy in all the stuff you can get and all the wealth you can amass. And I'm telling you, if you don't have two pennies to rub together when you leave this place and you know Christ in the full pardon of your sins, you have got more than you'll ever need. You've got Christ. Better than that, beloved, he's got you because he has come to set at liberty those who were once held captive. And I'm thankful for his liberating grace. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us today. Lord, we thank you for those blessed words that the prophet Isaiah wrote and that Christ fulfilled in the hearing of those folks, even in the synagogue. We ask, Lord God, that you bless us with this uh, reality that we have been set free. Comfort your people, I pray, O oh God. Let these words wash over us richly, that we might be encouraged in the promises of Christ, that you will never let us go. We thank you, Lord, for your precious gospel. We ask, O oh God, only that you would give us strength that we might share it with our neighbors and friends. Help us, Lord, to always be encouraged in you, always looking to you for our assurance. And Lord God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name for all that you have done and that all of you, that all, for all that you have completed on our behalf. We praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.